All right, let us begin. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today as we try to understand the meaning of the parables, but also the meaning of the various things that Jesus is trying to get across uh, to, to the Jewish people at the time he was here on earth. Uh, and help us then to also understand the main thrust of this gospel. So we ask your blessing on each and every one of us, and we just give you praise and thanksgiving and all things in Jesus' name. I want to start out by backing up a little bit on some of the things that we've already talked about, uh, because you will find in uh, these four or five chapters that we're going to be covering today, and it sounds like a lot of area to cover, but there's a way of uh, combining for certain things. The fact that there is a repetition here of two main subjects, and that is who Jesus is for you, not necessarily for the Jewish people, that was the reason that the gospel was written in the first place, with the emphasis towards the Jewish people. Remember, the four gospels are very similar in one nature, but very different in another, because their focus is to a specific group of people. And Matthew's gospel is sort of addressed to the Jewish people of his time. And therefore, the emphasis is on the changes that Jesus is trying to make. The writer is trying to enforce the concept that Jesus is the fulfillment of the role that Moses was playing earlier, and I don't mean the word playing in, in a uh, derogative sense of any order, but nevertheless, Moses was given a specific role, and he fulfilled it well, but it was only sufficient to carry the people just so far. Moses was the one through whom the Torah, the Jewish law, was established as sort of the beginning of the structure of Judaism. But it could only take the people so far into God's plan of salvation. And then it had to be taken beyond what could be done by any human being. And therefore, Jesus himself, God himself, had to come and fulfill that particular role. Well, this is the concept that is constantly being reinforced or being brought up in the Gospel of Matthew. And I'm hoping that you won't say, oh, here we go again, uh, because it is a subject that can never be overdone. And that is why we are going to be getting into uh, some of the things that we may have repeated in the, or may have discussed in the past, uh, but they, re they are important enough to be covered again. And I want to get into the parables, because the parables are extremely interesting, I think, and important, but... Before that, we have to cover some of these other subjects uh, first. In uh, one of the subjects that we didn't cover, at uh, least enough, when we were discussing John the Baptist in the second uh, lesson, was the statement that Jesus makes in chapter 11 of, of Matthew's Gospel, and he's talking about John the Baptist fulfilling the role of Elijah. And he finishes by saying, important as he was, and these are my words, 
important as John the Baptist was, that among those born of a woman, there has been none greater than John the Baptist, but the least who is born into the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Now, have you ever stopped to think about the meaning of that? And did you get an answer? Or did it leave you hanging with the question, uh, I don't understand that. And that is something that most people come up with. Well, how could, if, if he's saying, if Jesus is saying that John the Baptist is the greatest thing on earth, born of a woman, how could somebody else be greater? You know, and it's like, if you're perfect, you're perfect, you can't be more perfect, right? All right. Well, what Jesus is saying is, he's making a distinction between perfection under the concept of the Torah or the Old Testament versus the whole idea now that has been fulfilled and the concept of being a follower of Christ under the New Testament. One who has accepted Christ is on the road to justification or sanctification. And the ultimate of that, of course, is reaching your goal in heaven. And so John the Baptist never had the opportunity to know the full extent of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection because he died before that. And never, never then had the, the opportunity to be baptized into Christianity because it wasn't fully established yet. And therefore, he sort of missed out. But that doesn't detract from his role. He fulfilled his role perfectly. And he will be honored for that in heaven. But we who accept Christ and his teachings now have a different bar, so to speak. We raise the bar to what is the level of belief and action that we are now subject to. And as we assume that understanding and live according to that, then we will actually be greater than John the Baptist in the sense that we have been privileged to receive the body and blood of Christ and the teachings and the benefits of his passion, death, and resurrection. Does that make sense? All right. That's what we're trying to get across because Matthew's gospel is, I think, it is a perfect uh, tool for understanding Christianity and the, and the whole role of what Jesus was fulfilling. But let's go on a little bit more. To reject Christ or to be indifferent to Christ, or to ignore him, is a slippery slope, you might say, to hell. And that is what one of the things that uh, is puzzling to many people. Um, Jesus at one point is saying, Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin or Chorizon, however you want to pronounce it, and woe to you, Capernaum, for even though I have worked miracles within your cities, you have ignored me. You have made um, it very difficult for me to preach and teach. And therefore, you will go down to the netherworld and as you know, uh, well, Jesus would be back up a little bit. He says, in a sense, that 
if the, if the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is way back in the Old Testament, had listened to what Jesus was saying, of course, you can't do that because of the time and place difference, but nevertheless, if they, the people, had listened to Christ and had the opportunity to listen to Christ, they would have survived. But as we know, those cities were destroyed. And the same is true with the cities of Bethsaida, Chorazin, or Chorazin, and Capernaum. None of those cities exist because once Christ will condemn a city or a person, it is forever. And that is something that we have to think about because in addition to various parables and other teachings, there are several warnings that Christ has given to us through the Gospels and particularly through the book of Revelation regarding the ideas of accepting Christ and living according to his teachings versus being indifferent or deliberately accepting the other way of not living up to his teachings. And that is a frightening thing in a way if you think about it because as Christ has said, there's only two ways, my way or the highway, so to speak, in putting it in current vernacular. And so many people are ignoring that. Our culture today is so uh, in tune to having a good time and getting the best out of whatever they can and the heck with anyone else and so forth and so on that they are totally ignoring the teachings of God himself. And when I listen to the radio or the television um, and see some of the commercials and some of the stories that are on there, I shudder to think of particularly those young people that are totally ignoring God and living for the moment, living for whatever they can get out of it, uh, living for whatever they can, uh, you know, get for themselves in a material or earthly sense. They're selfish. And there's no thought whatsoever of the moral responsibility that we all have to observe. We are all uh, required to live up to a certain degree of moral responsibility. And that is the key to heaven. And if we don't, the only other place to go is down. And how frightening that is. Let me go on <clears throat> to another. The Jewish people made such a great deal of observing the law that they actually forgot why they were observing the law. It became more important than God himself. And Jesus and his immediate apostles were taken to task one time because they were going from city to city and they were going through a wheat field uh, to get to wherever they were going. And that was permissible. But not on the Sabbath. To make matters worse is, as they were going through, and I think we've all done that, particularly as kids, if we find wild wheat growing, we'll pull off the kernels and try to eat them. Well, they were doing that because they were hungry. And it was <clears throat> the Sabbath. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees or the scribes, whoever were nearby, were looking at them and scoffing and criticizing them because they were doing something that was against the Jewish law. And they were essentially harvesting and eating something on the Sabbath, totally forgetting the purpose 
and the why and the wherefore that this was being done, overlooking the needs, the human needs of an individual versus observing the law. And Jesus, <coughs> Jesus is so exasperated, he ends up after a long teaching by saying, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And of course, the Pharisees and the scribes just go, oh my, you know, how could anybody say anything like that? But being God, he was not only able to, but had the authority to say it. And he tried to get across the fact that, yes, the laws are there as guides, but you've got a reason on the execution of those laws to the betterment of mankind, not to the detriment of mankind. And in another place, Jesus is being accused of working his various miracles through the power of the devil, Beelzebub. That is one of the many names that the Jewish people use, the most common names. <coughs> well, let, let's go on. I don't, I'm going to bother with, with that. This was one of the names that were used to signify the spirit of evil, the devil. <coughs> and Jesus sort of sits back and waits till they're kind of finished with their accusations. And then he said, well, if I do that through the power of Beelzebub, by what means do your people work miracles? And of course, they were very proud that certain members of the Pharisees and the Sadducees had certain powers to work miracles, and they did. God gave them certain powers, and not just anyone or everyone or a lot, but occasionally for a given purpose. If you read back in some of the stories of the Old Testament, there were times, particularly Elisha and Elijah, uh, worked miracles. I don't know if you recall, you know, the Jewish people celebrated, and this is sort of just an aside, but the Jewish people celebrated uh, with great fanfare the uh, Passover of uh, crossing over the Red Sea. And we're all familiar with that, are we not? But are you aware that there are were two other crossings uh, in the same way, not of the Red Sea, but of the Jordan? That they are not mentioned because they weren't built up in a, such a way that they were part of Jewish law. They were a part of escaping. And this is one of those times uh, was when Joshua brought the people into the promised land. They had to cross over the Jordan. And he did the same thing that Moses did in crossing the Red Sea. He struck the water with his staff and the waters parted and they crossed over. But this wasn't something part of Jewish law. This was a, sort of an escapism. Another time was uh, when Elisha and Elijah uh, were going to a specific spot where Elijah was taken up to heaven in the whirlwind, and Elisha had asked for uh, some form of power to continue Elijah's role. So Elijah gave him his cloak, which has always been in Jewish history a symbol of giving power from one person to another. And with that power, then Elisha, they were in on the east side of the Jordan, and he had to cross back over. So again, he struck the river, and he was able to cross over. But you see, there's many miracles within the Old Testament that we kind of 
pass over and don't think about it. So when Jesus is being accused by uh, the Pharisees as working miracles through the power of the devil, he said, well, who did you work your miracles through? And of course, they have no way to respond because there was no difference between what their people did, that is Elisha and Elijah and Joshua, etc., versus what Jesus is doing. So he's trying to wake the people up that God is interested in the individual as an individual rather than what the individual is doing, observing the law or not. But there are limits. There's limits to everything that Jesus says and does. And he has set those limits. And that is what we are trying to learn through studying the Gospels. Where did they think the power to create, to do miracles came from? Did did they feel they didn't come from God? That they just, because he's because they were important and therefore they could do miracles, or did they have a feeling that way? Well, see, of course, God provides those the power to do things. Yeah, well, you're talking about Elisha and Elijah and Joshua. They really really didn't think about where that power comes. If they did, they wouldn't have accused Jesus. Right. And that's what he is trying to remind them of. You know, where did your people get the power then? Uh, uh, Because the power to do good can only come from God. The devil would not uh, give us power to do something good. And after all of these miracles that Jesus has worked, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, more or less to justify themselves, ask for more signs. And Jesus, you know, in exasperation, is saying, more signs? Look at all that I've done for you. You know, the blind has been cured and can see. The lame now can walk. People with illness have been relieved from it. And now you want more? Because anything more, you wouldn't be more convinced than you already are. Okay. But he says, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Now, when we think of the sign of Jonah, what do we think of? Well, we think of, yes, the idea of three days in the body of the, of the whale, okay? But there is a more important sign that is sort of overlooked when Jonah goes to Nineveh to convert that city, which is now not a Jewish city. It is a pagan city or a Gentile city, all right? And first of all, he doesn't want to go there. And that's what gets him sort of, uh, he volunteers to be thrown overboard, you know, and that's uh, how the whale swallows him, of course. Now, this is a story. It is not history. Uh, so, because a lot of people say, oh, well, I don't believe that. He could live for three. Well, that's not important. Like I said, it's a story. It is not history. But the idea of Jonah, a Jewish prophet, going to a Gentile city and converting that city from its evil ways to those that are acceptable to the teachings of God at that time is a far more important sign than the belly, uh, the three days he spent in the belt of the whale. <clears throat> because what do you have here? You have a man sent 
from God to a city that is a pagan city and they are converted. What Jesus is really trying the Pharisees to understand by that is that he, representing Jonah, Jesus, representing Jonah, has come to try to convince the Jewish people who have neglected their teachings of Moses um, and have gotten away from worshiping God because they are now worshiping the laws and they are no different than Nineveh was before Jonah got there. And so the teachings of Jonah in a pagan town becoming successful is what Jesus is trying to get across. Does that make sense? Uh, yes. Is there any thought that Jonah in the in Wales for three days, Jesus mentioned to his, and his being is that is going to be a forecast? Yes, yes, yes. The three days in the belly of the whale is sort of a forecast that would eventually come true through the resurrection of Christ. Yes. And you'll find throughout Matthew's Gospel a lot of those little innuendos that is really what why we call the Gospels, the fulfillment of the Torah. Yeah. Okay. Now, I want to end this particular section <coughs> of this teaching today with the story about the wine, the old wine versus new wine and the wineskins. How many of you really understand that? <coughs> Uh, nobody's venturing to raise their hand, I see. <laughs> no, the meaning of it, not the physics, but yeah. The whole idea is that we have to change to open our mind and our heart to accept the teachings of Christ. And of course, this is what Jesus was trying to get the Jewish people to see. You cannot expect God to welcome you into heaven just by observing rules and regulations. There's a great deal more to it than that. And that's what they were doing. Now, when I say the Jewish people, it, of course, we have to understand we're talking about the leaders because the average Jewish person could not read or write. Not that they were ignorant in any way. It was just they didn't have the materials and the experience and capability because there was no one to teach the masses. <clears throat> but the whole idea is mental change. You have to be willing to accept new ideas and change your ways. So the wine represents the teachings of Christ. All right, And you cannot jam those teachings back under the thinking of the Old Testament. The people of the Old Testament times have to change their mind and their heart to accept the new teachings of Christ. And so you cannot pour new wine into old wineskins because the fermentation of that new wine, which has not been completed yet, will cause the old wineskins to burst. Okay? Now, so therefore, the new wine has to be poured into new wineskins. In other words, the teachings have to be poured into somebody or a person whose mind is now open and willing to accept new ideas. 
Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I shudder when I hear this read at Sunday Mass and then the person giving the homily, whether it's the priest or the deacon, totally misses the point, almost invariably. They've missed the point themselves. All right. But the whole idea is mental change, willing to accept something new and different. Of course, like I said, this was addressed to the Jewish people at that time. But we today, some of our young people, who think nothing except having a good time and fulfilling their uh, desires, whatever, uh, you know what I mean, uh, they have to change as well. And we, as parents and grandparents, have to be willing to initiate some of that change. And yet, most of them say, well, they're not my children, they're my children's children, you know. So, no, 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 no. You still have a certain amount of a responsibility. And grandparents, in many ways, can have a greater influence on their children, on the grandchildren, Yes. Then the parents. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I have six grandchildren and two great grandchildren. So, yeah. But luckily, I'm so proud of my my oldest granddaughter, who is a convert to Christianity, along with her husband and the two children who go to St. Joseph Church up in Auburn, in the school. Okay. Very proud of them. Yeah. Okay. Now, yes. Uh, I question. Um, going back to Matthew 11, 11. Yes. My my take on this is that uh, in his humility, uh, Jesus is the least in the kingdom, and yet he's greater than John the Baptist. Well, he's not talking about Jesus. He's talking about anyone, anyone who accepts the teachings of Jesus, and is baptized. That's the key. Is baptized and eventually gets to heaven is greater than John the Baptist was at the time Jesus, John the Baptist died. All right. And the fact is, or the, the reason is, John the Baptist never had the opportunity because he died before the teachings of Christ. Now, that didn't keep him out of heaven and he fulfilled his role in God's plan of salvation very well. Okay. Uh, there is no hierarchy in heaven. I sure hope not, but uh, <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. Uh, yeah, like, be like I said, you know, I, I always vision heaven as a huge church. And you want to be in the back just inside the door, or do you want to be up in front where all the action is? You know, so that's that's a hierarchy in itself. Okay, we don't we don't know. No, all right. Well, let's get into some of the parables. Uh, what are parables? First of all, they are stories. They are not history. So many people swear by uh, the wording of the Gospels or the wording of uh, the New Testament. And they will sort of hang their hat on every single word rather than the message. And that is one of the uh, really drawbacks of many of the Protestant uh denominations, beliefs, is because they believe, as Martin Luther taught, that the Bible alone can be your savior. And as you know, if I put 10 Bibles out here from different time periods, they would all have different words. The message would probably be the same in all 10, but the wording would be different. So which one do you follow if you're following that uh, by 
scripture only uh, concept. You can't do that. But let's go back now to some of the parables that Jesus is talking about or uses. He uses these stories as a teaching, not to hide anything, but because the people, like I said before, were not well educated and they enjoyed stories. That's why you have so many stories versus history in the Old Testament. Yes. I have a problem with what you just said. In that Jesus will preach a parable and then he and the apostles will go someplace and they'll say, what did you mean? I didn't understand you. So if they don't understand him, how are the other people going to understand what the parable meant? Well, good point. Good point. Because that was part of the fun of using parables to those people. Okay. Um, they enjoyed the idea of being given a problem story so that they could figure it out themselves. Even as children, I recall back in elementary school, uh, mathematical word problems. Remember that? <laughs> and it was something that you were supposed to figure out yourself as a matter of better understanding. And the parables were meant to be the same thing. It was something that was in there that Jesus was trying to get across to the people that would take time to figure figure out by thinking about it. Okay. Now, the word parables itself is from the Greek meaning comparison. So usually you have two elements, sometimes more, but most of the time just two elements or two figures or two aspects of something and you'll get the word such and such is like. In these cases, Jesus is using the parables to say the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like. Now be careful. In scripture, in writing, when they use the word like, L-I-K-E, it doesn't mean the same as. It means similar to, but not the same as. So many people have taken the word like to say this is the same as that. And that's not what it means. So be very careful. <clears throat> it's unfortunate in some ways that the translation comes out using the word like because in many other languages, I know in Italian and in Spanish and French, there is no word for the word like. They have to use some other word. And I think there are a number of other words uh, better than the word like. But, you know, uh, so that is one sort of uh, red flag. Be careful when you hear or use the word like. It means similar to, but different from. And that is the point. You are trying to figure out how is this similar and yet not the same. Each of these items has their own identity, but they can be similar. And I'll put on the board here uh, some of these. Okay. In a way, the story of the old wine and the wineskins is a parable. Because what we're doing here is we're comparing the word of God, which is the new wine being poured into old wineskins, and that's of no use because it bursts through the skin. 
but therefore it has to be poured into new wine skins, meaning people who have opened their minds and their hearts to a new way of thinking. Okay. But there are others. And I want to um, I want to demonstrate here some of these. You have the wheat, the weeds. Uh, I've got a few others here. Mustard seed. Then you have a pearl of great price. You have a treasure. And there are others, but yeast, yeast is another one. Now, can you think of what is common to all of these words? Hmm? What? People. In what way? Well, uh, let's hold that one off for a little bit. <laughs> All right? Yes? They're all things that the people are trying to relate to. Yes, that's the whole purpose of a parable, that you can relate to the two things that are being compared. All right? But there are other things. Let me write, let me write that down. Amen. There's one of them. Alright. Whoops. <laughs> Alright. Similar. What about growth? What about hidden or, you know, planted? Any others? Hmm? Well, that's, that would be valuable. Yeah. Okay. Anyways, you get the idea. All right. Um, Worth working for, difficult to find, etc. These are kind of similar in a way. But there are a number of other things too. The whole idea that there's relationships between what these are and these. Now that's, that's not true with all parables. Now in, in the um, Matthew and Luke's gospel, there are about 30 parables. Some of them are repeated uh, in different forms. But the whole idea of parables is to use something that the people will understand what these are all about. What about the one of the uh, prodigal son? You have the prodigal son, which, as we all know, went off to squander his money in, in high living like young people do today. But what about the older son? He stayed home and he was very... Uh, responsible to his father. But if you look behind the scene and look into that story, he resented every minute of that time that he spent there with his father. 
And when the father held a reception for this, uh, the younger son that came back and repented, the older son resented that and wouldn't go into the reception. He disobeyed his father right then and there by refusing to accept that. So you have a comparison there. Which of the two sons are you? Or which of the two sons am I? And at different times, we are both. One or the other. Okay, What we have to do with that story is to think about how do we change so that we are somewhat like the son in the good, you know, the older son in the good things, but repentant and regretful or sorrowful and willing to make up by being the servant or the slave of the father as the young son, you know, younger son. So you have to start thinking about the various things that are used in the parables to give us some idea of what is God really trying to teach us. Any questions? Do you see the similarity between all of these and all of those? Not exactly, but yet similar. So you would say that these are like these, but they're not the same. So be careful when you hear the word like used. And quite often it is used in the English versions of the uh, New Testament and people will get a little confused by that. As we go forward into our teachings, we will see more and more warnings that Jesus is giving us. Wait till you get into chapters 24 and 25. Uh, they are often called the little apocalypse in reference to the book of Revelation, which is often referred to as the great apocalypse. All right. Now, even when they talk about the book of Revelation, most people think of, oh, the end of the world. Well, that's not what it's about. There's a lot of gloom and doom in that, but those are examples of things that happened in the past. The book of Revelation is really the last warning in the Bible of God himself telling the people who read the Bible that unless you fulfill all of the precepts that I have set forth, the guidelines that I have set forth for a holy life, the only alternative is hell. It is a last warning. And he said, and it says in Revelation, to back up what he's been saying on those warnings, is look, I have done this to whole nations in the past, and I can do it again. He did it to Sodom and Gomorrah. He did it to the Babylonian, the Assyrians, I should say, uh, and the northern part of Israel in the 8th century BC. Destroyed and took those people out of Israel, never to be seen again. He did it again in the 6th century and carted off the majority of uh, the Jewish people to Babylon. And they wandered there for 50 years. So he is saying in the book of Revelation, I've done it in the past, and I can and will do it in the future. And that's why I feel that our society today, not just the United States, but all over the world, is headed in the same direction. So it's important that 
we and our families turn around and pay more attention to the teachings of Christ than we have up till now. So the next or the rest of this Gospel of Matthew (laughs) is giving us many warnings along this line of the same thing. And when I said, when we come to chapters 24 and 25, it is really predicting uh, the end of Judaism and the end of the uh, temple, the destruction of the temple, which didn't take place until uh, 70 or more years after that, after his teaching. But be careful. Uh, we cannot ignore the warnings of Christ that are on this go- that are in this gospel and in the others as well. Any questions? Well, after all of that gloom and doom, you know, it might well, be. After all, then we're sort of destroying the country, the world, huh? Yes, we are very much so. Uh, there was a frightening story. Uh, article in the Wall Street Journal, I believe it was yesterday, about this scientist Stephen Hawking, who predicted that uh, the technology that is being developed uh, will be so advanced within the next few years uh, that it could change our lives entirely. Well, I was thinking as I read that, because he's often said he does not believe in God and Anyone that does is, is foolish, or, or stronger words. Um, if that is true, and it kind of appears that it's headed in that direction, we have to be prepared. And the only way we can be prepared is pay more attention to the teachings of Christ through the church. Any other questions? Um, the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple, would have been like the destruction of the city in the Old Testament, not the city itself, but the Jews. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, uh, and uh, most Bible scholars say it wasn't the Romans who. Uh, destroyed the temple for their purposes. It was, they destroyed the temple, but it was God using them to destroy the temple because remember, it was the temple that the Jewish people at his time, Christ's time, who always held the temple up as God, their God, being among them and protecting them. In other words, they were using it again for the wrong purpose. And they were not fulfilling the role that the temple was, a place of worship and obedience to the teachings of Christ. We are so fortunate to be able to come to Mass freely every single day and participate in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And yet, I see over and over, particularly when I was the Eucharistic minister, people taking the host, the body and blood of Christ, popping it in their mouth, and then walking down the aisle, shaking hands and saying hello to to others. Or leaving the church, yeah, and going off to their own. What are they thinking about? What are they believing in the, what does the host mean to them? And that is the question that we started with. God saying, who is Jesus Christ to you? And that's the way we will open next week's class. Right? With that same question. Who is Christ for you? Any other teachers? Yes. Um, 
think that they had to be there and they had to be a protection so that Jesus could let all the other people know, I don't want you to behave like this. I want you to listen to me and to me and to me. Kind of thing if they, if he hadn't had somebody who was always there to pick on him, then, you know, it would have, his teaching would have been maybe a little bit more difficult for people to get. Yes, you're right. Uh, I think Jesus or God should say God really allows certain things to happen uh, because it is sort of a tool to further his plan of salvation. I think we found that uh, throughout the Old Testament. If you look back in the whole idea of when the Israelites, because I prefer to call them Israelites at that time, went to Egypt in the first place. It was because of a famine. It was because God wanted them to go there in order to solidify this family of Jacob uh, into a nation. And it helped by corralling them into territory that they were originally welcomed as guests and given the best territory possible uh, to settle in. So those things were good. But if they didn't, if that didn't turn around and they become slaves under a new pharaoh who never knew the earlier reasons for them being there, they wouldn't have wanted to come back to Israel. And that was part of God's plan. They're coming back. So he used this idea of slavery to more or less force them out of Egypt and back into the promised land where the whole idea of solidifying and developing this plan of salvation could move forward. And there's other things where bad things, quote-unquote, to use a common term, were put in place to further God's plan. Yeah. And, and your part is right. That's my Well, Val, don't you think our technology is hurting our country? In many ways, yes, because it's not using it for the best purposes. Bad yeah. things as well as good yeah. things. Yeah. It's in more bad things than... More bad things than good things. Than well, it certainly is detracting uh, or distracting, whichever way you want to say it, uh, from <laughs> the teachings of God, all right? And holiness and purity and simplicity, uh, all of those. We don't hear those words anymore. No. They don't use, uh, there's no reverence for even the simple things that they needed really well. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, reverence is gone and uh, there's no reverence for life and I think that's probably where it started. And I think the younger generation isn't listening to the older generation now. That's for sure. That's for sure. They, they know everything in, in their own way. They gotta have everything new. <laughs> they don't know anything real fast. And money just goes like this. Right. Well, one of the things that I go to St. Rose uh, on a daily basis uh, and when you see the school children marching out of the school into the church and they're all in their uniforms uh, and they march with, you know, not greatest order or discipline, but in a respect for authority. And that's one thing you don't see with young people today, a respect for authority. And yet... I think when I see this, how fortunate these few children are because they're getting something that they could never get in a public school. And that is a, an appreciation for authority. And that will carry them through life as well. You're just too quiet. <laughs> Any other questions? Uh, I don't want to move forward. Yes, Doris? That's right. 
That's right. Yes. But I've often been asked, why doesn't God intervene? And the thing is, if God intervened on all perspective or future bad things, he would be taking away the free will of those people involved. But remember, Christ has said, anyone who dies for the sake of me, meaning Christ, uh, or the sake of the gospel, will find his reward immediately in heaven. And that's the whole idea or concept between martyrdom. You know, we've had recently many Christian or Catholic churches in Asia and in Africa who have been destroyed by the enemy. Well, all of those people who died in those particular incidents will be considered as martyrs and enjoy their place in heaven immediately. So if we look at it in that sense, it is not as uh, a tragedy as most people would think. But your point, Doris, is, is right. Um, bad things do happen to good people, not because God wants it that way, but he permits it because to do or to intervene would be to take the free will of that person or person away. Yes. 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 That, that you know raises the issue again of moral responsibility. Now that kid that just did that tremendous uh, in Florida, uh, you know. Several people have come forward saying that they have let authorities know that this kid was uh, really a serious problem and the authorities dropped the ball and didn't do anything about it. Well, here is where moral responsibility acts and yet, unfortunately, others did not follow through. So... It's unfortunate, but that's why God cannot uh, step in and make changes here and here and here and here. It's because it would upset the whole apple cart of what is going on. And it would take away our need to rely on God for other things. Have you... If we look back in, in the Bible history, we can see that God did not let free will take place. He put a stop to it and changed things for his purpose. Mm-hmm. Yep. Has the thought crossed our minds that maybe we're in one of those periods now where he's letting us do things that are destroying yep. the atmosphere and so forth? as a way of dramatically changing things in the future? Well, yes, I, I, I think so. But I see the church, and I'm using that in a very general way, the church ignoring that end of their responsibility. We hear these nice, warm, fuzzy words in our sermon. Do we ever hear about the other side of the coin. No. And it's like, hello, you priest, have you ever turned on the television? Have you ever read the newspaper and what's going on? And what our responsibilities are? No. Unfortunately not. And... <clears throat> I gotta be careful because this is being recorded. <laughs> I, I'm gonna be, that, I'll be shot at dawn, you know. That, that's very true, man. You don't hear the other side of the coin, you know. That's right. 
And that is part of what this gospel is all about, is the other side of the coin, our responsibility. And the warnings, if we don't heed that, and you're going to get more of that as we go along. So please don't think, oh, Mel's going to bring up that discipleship business again. And, uh, unfortunately, that's what it's all about. And that is why I gave you this diagram here a few weeks ago. Right? To know Christ and to accept Christ up here is to know what love is all about. Remember, we cannot truly love in a biblical sense until we have experienced God's love for us. Now, that doesn't mean we can't do nice things for people, but it is not truly love. And the prime ingredient of that love is respect for God and respect for others. That doesn't mean that you have to be nicey-nice or kissy-kiss to, you know, the neighbor next door or down the street or, or this poor kid in Florida. But you have to respect the dignity of the individual. The fact that he, like all of us, are children of God and that we have to respect that. And then the other elements of love are also listed here. But then the extension of love within the teachings of Christ is what discipleship is all about. So it is a path. And that path then leads back to heaven. That makes sense. I hope you'll take this out from time to time and look at it and see where you are fitting in or not fitting in. Any other questions? Let's end with a prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you help us to truly open our minds and our hearts to accept your teachings, your guidelines, to accept the fact that you love us out of a pure and divine love. And then, are we reflecting that to others through our actions and through our speech? Help us to truly understand in this time of Lent where we can improve or where there is a weakness in our relationship with you that needs repair work or improvement. So help us then to open our minds and our hearts to what the Spirit is saying to us now and as we go forward. We thank you now for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.